Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 30th, 2016. I'm sorry I'm distracted. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to commence with our series, Martin Luther in life and death. I can't help but do this. I used to like to joke when I was a young kid that Martin Luther was punished by the Pope by being put on a diet of worms. Of course, in English it makes perfect sense. But of course, a diet is a congress or an administrative meeting, and Worms is a town in Germany. Cultural context is everything when we want to understand history. And now perhaps we can understand how so many people can be so confused over so many passages in the Bible. They have no cultural context by which to understand what's going on. Even people that supposedly have educations fall into all sorts of traps. Maybe the Luther example is primitive and simplistic, but it's nevertheless valid. And funny if you're a kid, I guess. Martin Luther in Life and Death, Part 14, Luther at Varms. Not all historians have all the facts, or think that, and this is the big challenge, think that all of the facts which they do have may be important enough to include in any particular narrative. It is probably impossible to get every detail and angle of any story into a, any, any complex story, into a single historical account, as that may require so many digressions that it is easy to wander so far from the central narrative so as to never return. As exhaustive as our source volume is for the account of the Reformation in Germany, there are some things which it overlooks, and we may not ever realize most of what it misses. So we can never presume to know everything about any historic event, because we can always be blindsided by some new discovery or revelation that somebody else had actually known for a long time, and we just hadn't read that account. But with multiple witnesses and well-cited sources, we can be confident with what things that we do know. Examining history, both humility and discernment, are important qualities to develop. We have already presented the account of our source historian, Johannes Janssen, of Luther's travel from Wittenberg to Worms, under a promise of safe conduct to appear before the emperor. Janssen had given an appropriate but general account of the festivities which accompanied Luther in his travels, and the places where he had spoken and the things which he had said on the way.
Today, it's a six-hour drive from Wittenberg to Varms. But back in horse and carriage days, it would have taken well over a week to make the journey of approximately 320 miles, and even longer, because Luther's route was indubitably not as direct as the modern highways. So here we have another account of this journey from a book titled Martin Luther, His Road to Reformation by Martin Brecht and translated into English, published in the mid-1980s, by James Schaff. Brecht not only seems to draw a more complete and colorful picture of the journey, but he also includes an account which Johann Janssen may not have been aware of, detailing some of the behind-the-scenes maneuvering on the part of Glapion, the priest and confessor of Charles V, which was evidently an attempt to cut Luther off before he reached Varms. So he will here we will present Martin Brecht's account of Luther's journey, found on pages 449 to 455 of his book. On the morning of April 7, Luther preached in the Augustinian church, which was full to overflowing. The balcony threatened to collapse, so some of the participants broke the windows in order to jump to safety. Luther, however, calmed the congregation over this trick of the devil, and then no accident occurred. The sermon itself was printed on the basis of notes that had been taken. It treated the central theme of how a person should regard piety and righteousness. The philosophers and doctors have taught a great deal about this, but they have accomplished little. Justice and true piety consist in alien works and not in one's own ceremonial actions. It is through Christ's suffering and death that God has overcome sin, death, and hell. But the Pope calls for one's own works. Although one can truly be saved only through faith and God's work. Alien works, they make us pious or righteous. But one comes to faith only through the promising word. The righteousness of faith is not preached correctly, but instead they talk about fables and philosophy. Therefore the punishment of God is proclaimed to the false shepherds. To be sure, despising human laws and works provokes a reaction and ultimately leads to excommunication by the Pope. Luther openly declared that one should pay no attention to this excommunication. That was the sole allusion to the present situation. Human works are proper when they are done in faith and love, and where they are regarded as nothing. Worshipping God in the world consists in helping one's neighbor, being concerned for the weak, and renouncing self-interest. All in all, this sermon Luther offered the Erfurters, the people at Erfurt, an attractive and understandable summary of his evangelical message. And of course, Luther's position 
in regard to works is the correct one. This paragraph very closely mirrors our own presentation yesterday evening of Paul's third and fourth chapter of his epist- chapters of his epistle to the Philippians. This is what was taught by Christ and by Paul. So long as we understand that term, alien works, to mean things that we do for other Christians, rather than those ceremonies that we do for ourselves, which do not save us, nor gain us anything for the body of Christ, for its edification, or for our treasure in heaven, so to speak. Continuing with Brecht's account, Luther also preached in Gotha and Eisenach. Everywhere in electoral Saxony, he enjoyed a festive and enthusiastic reception. In Eisenach, he was not feeling well and had to be bled. On the 14th of April, he reached Frankfurt. He was feeling well again, and according to Cochleus's report, even drank with friends and played the lute like an Orpheus in the cowl. From there, he informed Spalatin that he believed the mandate for sequestration had been issued in order to frighten him away from coming. But Christ lives, and we shall enter Varms in spite of all the gates of hell and the powers in the air. And Luther, as we had previously seen, was ordered by the emperor to be sequestered when he arrived at Varms, probably for the sake of public order, as not even the emperor had an armed guard. In Spalatin's report, and also in Luther's other statements, this became the well-known formulation that he was determined to go to Varms, even if as many devils were in that city as tiles on the roofs. Spalatin should therefore arrange accommodations. Before Luther arrived in Varms, however, a noteworthy interlude took place, and this is what Johannes Janssen had totally missed, or omitted. On the 5th of April, the Imperial Chamberlain, Paul von Armerstorff and Glapian had visited the Ebernberg. The reason was to enlist Sickingen and Hutton in the Imperial service. In addition, Glapian attempted to have Luther invited to the Ebernberg instead of Varm where he could conduct secret negotiations with him. Now, Luther passing into Frankfurt is no no longer in Saxony. He's in the Rhineland Palatinate. And that is where the Ebenberg and Varms also are. The Ebenberg Castle is about 40 miles northwest of Varms, and somewhat beyond the path of Luther's journey. Built in 1338, it still stands today. Fortunately, it was probably outside of the range of Bomber Harris, or more appropriately, Butcher Harris.
to continue with our narrative. The mediator was to be Sickingen's chaplain, Martin Bucher. Glapion asserted that he was concerned for Luther's safety and wanted to encourage the reform of the church, something he had already emphasized in the discussions with Brooke. Now, Brooke is Saxon Chancellor Gregor Brooke. He was a long-time counselor to Frederick the Elector and to his successors. He was firmly on the side of the Lutherans. There is no reason to doubt Glapian's honorable intentions, even though it is not completely clear how they were to be carried out. The confessor succeeded in winning over Booker and Hutton for his plans. From his long discussions with Glapian, Booker received the impression that an understanding between Luther and the imperial side was possible. According to Aleander's report, Aleander being the papal nuncio, or nuncio, I don't know how that would be pronounced. Glapian did not deviate at the Ebenberg from the understanding that certain statements of Luther were heretical. All the participants in the discussion, however, had a common interest in church reform. Nevertheless, Spalatin who had been informed by Bucher and Hutton, did not trust Glapian. Bucher met Luther on 15th April in Oppenheim and brought him the invitation to come to the Ebernsburg. Luther did not accept. He suspected that some sort of trick of his enemies was behind this. The confessor could just as well speak with him in arms. Allegedly, he did not become aware until later that by visiting the Ebenberg he could have jeopardized his safe conduct. In regard to the way the secret negotiations were planned, therefore, Luther did well, in fact, not to agree to them. Indeed, Glapian is said to have borne a mortal grudge against Luther because the secret negotiations did not take place. A meeting of the two in Varms, then, never did occur. On April 11th, Hutton informed Luther that he would support him until his dying breath. Aleander was already expecting Luther in Varms on April 15th. He was aware that this journey had become in part a triumphal procession, and he held the Imperial Herald, who was critical of Rome, responsible for this. The entire world, old and young, boys and girls, was flocking to the monk, meaning Luther, and no one was able to prevent this. The people appeared to be possessed by a mad passion for Luther, and again we see the effect of Luther's and Hutton's writings in the real world was indeed profound. But Aleander hoped that through Luther's coming, he would be able to guide the pro-Luther movement toward what was best for the church. He wanted to abscond Luther's movement. The emperor would certainly honor Luther's safe conduct, but if he refused to recant, he would subsequently call for the heretic's destruction.
Aleander was not able to keep Luther's companions from entering the city with the subterfuge that they, as his supporters, were automatically under excommunication. On his part, he criticized the resoluteness against Luther that was lacking on the imperial side. Thus, the emperor's best intentions were not being carried out. Aleander himself felt that a settlement with the insolent Saxon dragon, meaning Luther, was impossible. In the meantime, even the imperial side allegedly regretted Luther's coming. There was a preliminary discussion between the nuncios and Glapian concerning Luther's reception in Varms. Luther was to enter the city as quietly as possible and stay in the emperor's palace so that people could be prevented from associating with him. But this could not then be implemented. The nuncios were afraid that Luther would not simply be ordered to recant but that a distinction would be made between his statements criticizing dogma and those criticizing the Pope. Of course, the nuncios were the Pope's agents in Varms, Aleander being the foremost of them. Evidently, they wanted to... It was in their interest to maintain the confusion of the Pope for the Lord, to maintain confusion between which of Luther's statements criticized the Pope personally and which criticized church dogma. On April 16th, about 10 o'clock in the morning, Luther entered Varms, probably through the Mains Gate and the Grosskammergasse. Trumpets from the cathedral had announced his arrival the imperial herald and his servant rode in first, followed by the Wittenberg vehicle, of course, bearing Luther. And then Jonas, upon a horse, a reference to the humanist Justice Jonas, who had followed Luther's entourage on his own horse. Some of the nobles from electoral Saxony had procured it, Perhaps they procured Jonas's horse. Two thousand people are said to have been in the streets. Naturally, Aleander was not pleased with this crowd and was even more angry about the untrustworthiness of the imperial side because there was no room in Frederick the Wise's quarters, meaning Frederick the Elector of Saxony. Luther lodged near the house of the Hospitallers, on the Kammergasse, where the electoral Saxon councillors Frederick von Thun and Philip von Fielich, along with the imperial marshal Ulrich von Pappenheim, were also staying. <coughs> One has the impression that the electoral Saxon side, as well as the imperial side, wanted to keep their eyes on Luther. In Varms, which was overflowing, Luther had to share the room with Hans Schott and Bernhard von Hirschfeld, officials of electoral Saxony. On the day after his arrival, Luther was already being greeted and sought out by counts and lords, even by a few princes. One of the first to appear was the young landgrave, Philip of Hesse, 
and we will hear more of that meeting later on, but from another source. And here we will leave Brett's account of Luther's journey to farms, which we have repeated here because we once again wanted to show the effect which the writing of Luther and the humanists, Hutton only being one notable example, had on a common people of Germany at the time. The festivities surrounding Luther and his travels seemed to exhibit that even a majority of Germans were on his side against the papal oppression. We also wanted to show that there is more to every story, as our source historian for this presentation seems to have missed the behind-the-scenes maneuvering attempted by the confessor, Glapian, in order to steer Luther away from farms. There was much further behind-the-scenes maneuvering at Varms than what we have seen with Glapian later on, as Luther as Luther had up both approached and reached the town. We will not be able to cover every aspect of that, but it's evident in even further sources, which we will cite and present from later on this evening. Now we shall continue with our primary source for these presentations. The History of the German People at the Close of the Middle Ages by Johann Janssen, which was published in English in London in 1900. And this is Volume 3, Book 6. The first chapter is subtitled, The Deed of Arms and the Sentence on the New Gospel. And we shall commence with page 191 of our source volume repeating the last short paragraph at the point where he where we had left off in our last presentation. On April sixteenth, Luther arrived at Farms, with his escort, among whom was the humanist Justice Jonas. He was firmly resolved, he said, to defy all the gates of hell and the principalities of the air. Say a paternoster for our Lord Christ, he had said on the journey to the principal of the cloister of Reinhardsbrunn, Reinhardsbrunn, I guess, to ask his father to be gracious to him. If God maintains Christ's cause, mine is also one. Luther fully believing he was on the side of Christ. To Spalatin he wrote, It is our intention to defy and terrify Satan. Luther believing that the Pope was both Satan and the Antichrist. Now there are other details and developments with our, which our source historian has omitted. And one in particular which we find of interest is related in a book by one Thomas Lindsay, titled A History of the Reformation and published in 1906. The following is taken from page 298 after a discussion of many other behind-the-scenes political maneuvers which had been going on at farms leading up to Luther's arrival. And he says that Spalatin and Brooke
had discovered that the conduct of the audience was not to be in the hands of Glopian, the confessor of the emperor, as they had up to that time supposed, but in those of John Eck, the orator or official of the Archbishop of Trier. This looked badly for Luther. Eck had been officiously busy in burning Luther's books at Trier. He lodged in the same house and in the room next to the papal nuncio, Aleander. Indeed, Aleander boasts that Eck was entirely devoted to him and that he had been able to draft the question which Eck put to Luther during the first audience. Now we may remember Johann Eck from earlier in our history of Luther, where he engaged in a famous disputation with Luther at Leipzig in 1519, after which Eck had become an object of scorn in the writings of the humanists. Now to return to page 191 of our source volume, where Luther seems to have lost some of his fire, as he appears before the before the emperor, and Janssen says, but on his first appearance before the emperor and the council, on April 17th, Luther was by no means in a confident state of mind. To the question addressed to him whether he owned to these books, he gave an affirmative answer, but on the next question, whether he would retract them all, he asked for time to consider. He spoke in such a low voice that even those close to him could scarcely hear him, reported the Frankfurt delegate, Philip Furstenberg, and as if he was paralyzed with fear. The emperor and the notables answered that although he might have known from the tenor of the citation what he had been summoned for, and therefore was not entitled to delay for further consideration, the emperor of his innate clemency would grant him a respite until the following day. We will see later that others had a much higher opinion of Luther's performance at Varms, but Luther was severely limited by the emperor as to how and when he could speak and what he could say, and Frederick the Elector especially was greatly impressed by Luther's performance before the emperor. Ulrich von Hutten could not attend the proceedings at Farms because he himself was under a papal interdict and the Pope wanted the Emperor to send him in chains to Rome. Hutton had been in refuge at Sickingen's castle in Ebernburg during this time. Continuing with our source from page 192. On the day of the first hearing, Hutton wrote to Luther from the castle of Ebernburg, as the unconquerable evangelist, the saintly friend, and encouraged him to steadfastness. Keep a good heart and be strong. You see how greatly the course of events depends on yourself. If you remain true to yourself, I will stand by you to the last breath. For myself I shall hazard and hope for the utmost. It is time that the Lord should cleanse his vineyard. Would that I could go to Varms, Hutton wrote at the same time to Justice Jonas, and raise up a storm and an insurrection. 
On April 19th, the emperor sent the notables a document, which he had composed himself and written out in his own hand in French, or in another account, as we shall see, in Flemish, which was to the effect that he intended, after the example of his forefathers, to adhere loyally to the Christian faith and the Roman Church, and to believe in holy fathers, who had been gathered together in council from all Christendom, rather than in one solitary monk, that he regretted having so long abetted this man, and not having allowed him to be proceeded against in earnest, and that without a moment's delay, Luther must depart from arms. We will hold, nevertheless, to the safe conduct we have granted him. The emperor said in conclusion, he shall return unmolested to the place he came from, but we forbid his preaching any more and misleading the people with his heretical teaching and incitements to sedition. The night after this document was sent out to the estates, the following words were placarded upon several of the town gates. Woe to the land whose child is a king, which is a slap at Charles, who had just turned twenty-one years of age. Outside the council house, a notice was posted up which ran as follows. After we have conferred together and sworn not to forsake the righteous Luther, we, numbering four hundred allied knights, proclaim to the simple understandings of Romanist princes and lords, especially the Bishop of Mayence, meaning Albrecht of Mainz, our inveterate enmity, because honor and divine justice have been trodden down by them. We do not further indicate names or describe all the tyranny of the priests over their flocks. We are ill at writing, but we mean grievous injury. With eight thousand men we will fight. The threat ended with the dreaded watchword of insurgent peasants, three times repeated. Bunshu, bunshu, bunshu. And that word evidently referred to the shoe commonly worn by the peasants of the time. There was a Bunshu war or rebellion in Germany. Alarmed by repeated threats of this sort, the estates begged that the emperor would not so abruptly break off relations with Luther. They dreaded an insurrection in the empire if action was against him was taken thus hastily without further examination. They therefore submitted to the emperor that he would do well to let some of them endeavor to persuade Luther to retract the articles condemned by the apostolic see. Hutton, whom Luther had kept informed of the proceedings, could not divest himself of the fear that a reformer would give in. Unconquerable evangelist, he wrote to him on April 20th. I see that we need bows and arrows, swords and muskets to stop the fury of those devils. Do not waver, beloved father. Do not let thyself be shaken. Let them scream, clamor, rage. Stand up fearlessly against these monsters. You shall not lack defenders 
Avengers. The prudence of friends who fear my risking too much compels me to be quiet. Otherwise, I should long ago have raised a tumult under the walls of arms. Very soon, however, I shall break loose, and when I have done so, you will see that I too, in my fashion, will not betray the spirit that God has awakened in me. We have Franz von Sickingen as an ardent partisan. Hutton, at least externally, was forever the optimist. You have to thank the German nobility, said Thomas Munzer in a pamphlet against Luther, whose mouths you buttered and fed with honey, for having been allowed to appear before the imperial council at Varms. Fine visions they had of the windfalls, of abbeys and cloisters your preaching would cast at their feet. If you had wavered at Varms, you would at first have been stabbed by the nobles and then sent about your business. It's patent to everyone. In other words, Munzer is claiming that Luther's preaching sort of bribes the nobles with the booty that they would receive from looting and pillaging the priesthood. A committee consisting equally of ecclesiastical and secular members with Richard von Greifenklau, Archbishop of Trier, as president, tried all gentle means in dealing with Luther. The Augsburg delegate, Conrad Putinger, and the Baden Chancellor, Hieronymus Vehus, repeatedly begged him to commit his case to the hands of the Emperor and the Estates for final settlement. Putinger was a lawyer, a humanist, a representative of German bankers such as the Fuggers, and an early advocate of economic liberalism. He never joined the Reformation and retired from civil service when his city, Augsburg, did join it in 1534. Hieronymus Vihus was also a lawyer and made his name in Baden circa 1504 at the University of Freiburg by writing and staging a play praising the Emperor Maximilian. So Hieronymus Vejas seems to be the consummate sycophant. Continuing from page 195 of our source history, Luther rejected this proposal, informing its authors of the suspicions he entertained of his imperial majesty personally, and of many of the princes. He listened with perfect indifference to the statement of Vihis that turbulence and insubordination had been aroused by his writings, especially those on Christian freedom, which, as Vihis said, most people would interpret as giving them license to live just as they pleased. Luther also rejected the proposal that he should submit to the decision of a committee of German prelates, chosen on behalf of his papal holiness, who would consider his case in conjunction with the emperor. Finally, Putinger proposed to him that the decision should be postponed until the next council. Luther answered that he would agree to this on condition that at the council no judgment should be pronounced against or detrimental to the divine words, the epistles of St. Paul and the truth. 
In vain they tried to convince him that this was an inadmissible subterfuge, for he might say in every case that the judgment pronounced was contrary to the divine writings. Equally in vain, also, did John Cochleus, assistant theological counselor of the Archbishop of Trier, propose a public disputation. He would listen to no remonstrance when Cochleus asked him if he had had a divine revelation, seeing that he thus set himself up in opposition to the whole church and the councils. Luther answered after a little hesitation, It has been revealed to me. He declared that he would not desist from preaching and writing. And Johannes Cochleus was an adversary of the humanist poets as early as 1512, and was mentioned in part two of this series in that context. Now, the humanist poets were Luther's most vocal and ardent supporters. Christopher von Schwarzenberg wrote on April 25th to Duke Louis of Bavaria that the Archbishop of Trier had informed him that Luther had communicated something to him in strictest confidence, which was not to be repeated to anyone. This probably referred to Luther's intimation concerning the revolutionary body of knights who were backing him up, which all accounts believe to have been from Franz von Sickingen. When all attempts to come to an understanding with Luther failed, the emperor caused him to be informed that he must leave Arms without further delay. He still had 21 days of safe conduct left, but he must on no account preach or issue any pamphlets on the journey. Luther wrote to tell Hutton of this final decision, and he started from Arms on April 26th. Two days later he sent a missive from Friedberg to the Emperor, and another to the Estates, which last immediately appeared in print. On the title page, Luther was depicted with the halo, and with the Holy Ghost in form of a dove over his head. A memorial medal was struck with the inscription, Dr. Martin Luther Blessed be the womb that bear thee. Here our translator leaves a footnote explaining that there were other coins also bearing Luther's image which were made at this time. Continuing from page 196. I am going to be shut up and hidden away, wrote Luther to Lucas Cronach, the painter. Cronach was actually... um a pretty busy painter. He painted busts of most of the German political figures and reformers of this time. Though where I don't yet know myself, I must endure and be silent for a little while. A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, said Christ the Lord. I hope it will be the same with me. On the evening before his departure, 
The elector, Frederick, had told him in the presence of Spalatin and others that he was going to be put under restraint, but that he was not to know where the place of confinement would be, and that he, Frederick, did not wish to know it either, so that, in case of need, he might be able to swear ignorance. Luther was conveyed to the Wartburg. His followers, however, in order to incense the people, spread everywhere the rumor that the emperor's safe conduct had been violated, that Luther had been taken prisoner, handcuffed, and truly treated. Cruelly treated. It was even asserted that his corpse had been seen lying in a mine. Whilst the outbreak of a bloody insurrection was momentarily apprehended at Varms. The Lutheran case was brought to a conclusion at the Diet. On April 30th, the Emperor once more solicited the advice of the notables as to the best method of proceeding against Luther. His writings and his supporters, whether by proscription and outlawry or by some other penalty, the notables, who had already before advised the emperor, in case of Luther's refusing to retract, to protect the Catholic faith by issuing the necessary and customary edict against him, now insisted that this edict should be made out. The elector, Frederick of Saxony, wrote on May 4, 1521, that not only Annas and Caiaphas were against Luther, but also... Pilate and Herod, that is to say, not only the ecclesiastical princes, but also the secular ones. Frederick himself withdrew from the proceedings and left Varms. The edict, which Aliander was commissioned by the emperor to draw up, was ready by May 8th, but was not proclaimed till the expiration of the term granted to Luther in the safe conduct. It imposed outlawry and excommunication on Luther and all his partisans and patrons, and ordered his books to be destroyed by fire. Luther appeared to the emperor as a man possessed. By his writing, said the edict, he was disseminating noxious poison. He had violated the number, the institution, and the use of the sacraments, and degraded the sacred and unimpeachable law of marriage. He had belabored the Pope with scandalous and libelous language. He was treating the priesthood with contempt and inciting the laity to wash their hands in the blood of the clergy. He went about teaching the non-freedom of the human will, and encouraging a mode of life altogether unrestrained by law. Indeed, he had not scrupled himself to pull down all the most hallowed restraints and barriers by publicly burning the books of canon law. But biggest, Luther's biggest theological fault was to negate the laws of God. He correctly burned the books of canon law.
He spurned councils, and in particular he had called the Council of Constance, which, to its eternal honor, had restored peace and unity to Germany, a synagogue of the devils, and those who had taken part in it he denounced as antichrists and murderers. Of course, it's the Council of Constance where Jan Hus was condemned. Even as the wicked fiend in the garb of a monk, he united himself old and new heresies, and wore the semblance of a preacher of the faith in order that he might destroy the true and right belief, and in the name and similitude of evangelical doctrine might trample underfoot evangelical peace and love and public order. Besides Luther's books, all his miscellaneous publications, which had been issued in such quantities to the prejudice of the Christian folk, must also be destroyed, all his libelous pamphlets, and also his satires and caricatures of the Pope, and in order that in future the Christian community should be preserved from the pest of corrupt books and the noble art of printing, be used only for good and laudable purposes, all books and writings whatsoever, in which there was the slightest allusion to the Catholic faith, should be submitted before being printed to the approval of the ordinary of the place and to the theological faculty of the nearest university. There was already an edict censoring the printing of books, which was issued by the Pope at the Fifth Lateran Council. Obviously, it did not have much of an effect, at least in Germany. Around Varms, meanwhile, troops of several hundred knights had gathered together. It was reputed that Sickingen had announced that he would make an end of the Diet. We have Franz on our side, wrote Hutton on May 1st, 1521, to Willibald Perkheimer, and he is not merely favorably disposed, but red-hot and burning. He is, so to say, completely saturated with Luther. He has his books read to him at meals, and I have heard him swear that in spite of all dangers, he will not forsake the cause of truth. We will see that this is not very durable of an attitude. You must positively take these words as a divine voice, so great is his devotion and constancy. It would be well also if you were to sound his praises amongst your own people. There is no grander character in all Germany. Hutton's friends and confederates, the humanists, Eobanus Hesses and Hermann Vandenbusch, urged immediate action. There had been enough of words and talk, wrote the former to Hutton. He wished now to take arms against the hereditary foe, the worst and most veritable Turks they had yet had to fight. He would not be alone in this battle. From all corners of the fatherland, combatants would hasten to his standard. He and Sickingen would be the lightning strokes that would shatter the Roman pestilence. They must not wait, urged Hermann Vandenbusch, on May 5th, till the emperor had left arms, but rushed to, 
rush at once to arms. If Hutton allowed the papal nuncios, Luther's and Germany's worst enemies, to escape from Germany with sound limbs, and disappointed the expectations here, it would be a bad blot on his fame. We read in the book of Joshua, wrote Luther on June 1st, from the Wartburg to Sickingen, his particular lord and patron, that when God led the people of Israel into the promised land, that, and they slew all the people there, that is, thirty-one kings with all their cities, not one of the cities was so poor-spirited as to sue for peace, excepting Gideon only, but that in all their stubbornness fought against Israel. Thus it was ordained by God that as they fought stubbornly and defiantly against Israel, they were ruined thereby, and no mercy was shown to them. This history seems to me to be an, as an example to our popes, bishops, learned men, and other spiritual tyrants. But although their maneuvers have been disclosed, they have thought neither of submission nor of peace. They endeavor to extinguish the light by force, and they persist in their delusions, imagining themselves so firmly seated that no one can move them. And I expect it will be ordained by God that in their obstinacy they will neither think of humility nor treat for peace, so that at last they may be overthrown without mercy. I can do nothing more. I am put aside on the shelf, but they have time now to alter what can no longer be endured from them, nor will be endured, if they do not alter at all. Someone else, whom they will not thank, will do it for them, not like Luther, with letters and words, but with deeds. Sickingen, however, would not come forward actively. He refused to cooperate with the revolutionary party and found it more profitable to lend an arm to the emperor who had just laid Luther under the imperial ban. He hired himself out to Charles for a campaign against Robert Vandermark who had invaded the emperor's hereditary dominions and against King Francis I of France who encouraged and protected Robert. Here Hutton seems to have completely misunderstood Sickingen's true allegiances, which were evidently to his own profit and his own adventure. The Confederates were hesitating and trembling, said Hutton in his answer to, to Eobanus's letter. But he himself would persevere till death, would risk everything, would take up arms, and as before he had supported Luther in the spirit, so now he would help him with his fists. It was not his fault that the papal nuncios had escaped with whole skins. He had left nothing undone. He had waylaid them in the streets. He had set ambuscades, but the emperor's men-in-arms had protected them. After the proceedings of the worm's diet, it had become clear 
that the object aimed at by Luther and his adherents was nothing less than a complete subversion of the whole edifice of church organization and of all social order. Hence, all of those who did not wish for such revolutionary measures fell away from Luther. Former panegyrists became dumb. Many even over went over resolutely to the side of the church. Before May was out, Erasmus began to regret much of what he had written, and now began to utter warning prophecies against appropriation of church property, tumult, war, and the decay of liberal culture. Mutian, who had begun by greeting Luther as the morning star of Wittenberg, soon saw in him nothing but an unholy devastator, and complained out of the insolence and benightedness of this innovator, who had all the fury of a maniac. Crotus Rubianus came to recognize, in the summer of 1521, that it was a crime to attack the church. Our queen and holy mother who has given us such good laws. But this change of attitude was most marked in the case of a man who was one of Germany's greatest ornaments, the learned jurisprudent Ulrich Zasius. He too had originally hoped for an improvement in the condition of church matters through Luther's action, and shortly before the Leipzig distribution disputation, he had given utterance to the wish, may our Luther depart thither under favorable auspices. But after Luther had denied the divine appointment of the Pope and the infallibility of the councils, Zosius had gradually broken with him, and ever since the deed of arms, he had become more and more unreserved in his condemnation of the revolutionary trend of affairs. He lamented that Melanchthon was prostituting his noble intellect to the defense of Lutheran error. To his former pupil, Thomas Blairer, who had taken up Luther's opinions, he wrote on December 21st, 1521, You pity me, and I pity you from the bottom of my heart. You, a stripling, ignorant of the world, who would have forsaken the church to follow after shadows. Is it right to upset the whole church on account of the abuses of some of its members? And we have seen Luther's complaints and the gravity of the looting and pillaging of Germany by Bishop Albrecht, by Leo X in the indulgences dispute. The abuses of some of its members is certainly a grave understatement. To continue with Zasius's letter. You are reasoning from the exception to the rule, and because of the wicked you are condemning the good and throwing everything into confusion.' 
The dishonoring of the mass filled him with particular sadness. He thought of writing a pamphlet on a subject and remarked that it would be quite becoming in him to do so because you grammarians and poets, the young people of all sorts, presume to meddle with the deep mysteries of theology. You reject good works. Zasius thinking that these sacraments were good works. You reject good works, he went on. Although someone has said your work shall follow you, you insist on evangelical freedom, but you do not show how it is to be reached. What have you in view, unhappy young men, that you let yourselves be misled by unwise doctors? You say that you have learnt the gospel at the fountainhead from Christ himself, not from the fathers of the church. Who disputes that? I also have gone to the fountainhead, but in cases of obscure and doubtful passages in the gospel, I follow the exposition of Hieronymus, Augustine, Chrysostom, not yours. What unheard of audacity it is for one solitary individual to set up his interpretation above that of the fathers, of the church itself, of the whole of Christendom. What justification can you show for such presumption? But I know what you will answer. The Spirit guides and leads you. The Spirit, answer me, my Thomas, speaking to Thomas Blairer. What Spirit? Oh, how much I could say on this point. Is it the spirit that teaches you to slander and revile so scandalously? I have read in the epistle of St. James that wisdom is peaceable and sober, but your watchword is, not peace but a sword, for it was thus that Luther answered the princes, pressing the Bible meaning with intolerable audacity, for it was in any sense but that. Our Savior for it was in any sense but that that our Savior spoke those words. I have learnt from Christ that the sword must be put back in its sheath, and that whosoever fighteth with the sword shall perish by the sword. And that's from Matthew chapter 26 verse 52, which in this case is also taken out of context. Perhaps he was thinking of Luther. Under the cloak of the gospel, prophesied Zassius, the unbridled populace would break out in every possible form of infamy. And of course it's called a prophecy because of the peasants' war which is soon to follow. But Luther did not endorse or agree with the fighting of the peasants' war. When it was when it when it occurred several years after this, I was for a long time favorably disposed to Luther's proceedings. Wrote the prebendary Karl von Bodmin in much the same spirit as Zassius. Not because I wished for a separation from the teaching of the Church or thought new dogmas and new forms of divine worship either necessary or desirable but because I believe, like so many other learned men, that Luther was aiming at and would bring about a wholesome reform of ecclesiastical life. But the sight of all that is going on around us convinces us only too plainly 
that we have been bitterly deceived. How would it be possible to reform any institution if one began by a wholesale destruction of its organization with all its century-old traditions and practices and by proclaiming the whole structure to be throughout pernicious and corrupt? Worldliness and luxury, greed of gold and enjoyment, contempt of law, hatred and envy, and all other ignoble passions, by whatever name we may call them, are deeply rooted in all classes. They spring up as fruits of our fallen nature, in our age as in all other ages, and all the more abundantly in our age in proportion as in this or that land, in this or that city, an evil example is set to lower orders of the people by the rich and noble, by ecclesiastical and secular personages of the highest standing. He is basically giving the church license for its sins. But how, I ask, can rich or poor be improved by removing all curbs and checks of their evil passions, and all church discipline, and being taught to despise and ridicule the chastisements of the church, its its fasting and confession as hurtful institutions? Will the greed for gold and for the good things of this life be suppressed by holding out wealthy church endowments as baits to the mighty ones of the earth? Will the sanctity of family life be secured and shielded by the proclamation of marriage principles which make every earnest Christian blush? The religion of the people is essentially bound up with the church and its teaching, and with the loss of these, all secular authority will lose its support. Luther's character has great and noble features, but his presumption has brought about his downfall. I wish I could read in Luther's own soul how he judges his work and its results, and how he judges the enterprises of which he has been made the tool. So it seems that the men who were once firmly on Luther's side who should have realized that the Catholic Church would not stand for reform from within, were now abandoning what Luther had already long understood as the only alternative. And even long-time radical humanists, such as Mutian or Crotus Rubianus, now occupying a comfortable position as rector of the University of Erfurt, would abandon the cause for his present comfort and safety. William Shakespeare said it best in the mouth of Henry V, I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. To get the fuller account as to why these men may have been abandoning and even repudiating the Lutheran cause at this point, we will turn to another source, the history of the Greater Reformation of the 16th century. And I'm going to ab- abolish, I'm, I'm going to destroy the author's name, I'm sorry. It's by J.H. Merle de Aubigné, or de Aubigné. I don't know how to pronounce this French name, I'm sorry. I did listen to it on Google Translate. But I can't twist my tongue that way. I can't say it. Aubigné. They are big nay. 
the apostrophe A-U-B-I-G-N-E. This book was published in 1850, and this is from Book 7, page 205 of the one-volume edition, which was originally a four-volume edition. The servant of the Duke of Brunswick had scarcely left him when a message from the Elector of Saxony brought orders to Spalatin to come to him immediately. Frederick had attended the Diet with many apprehensions. He had expected that Luther's courage would have failed him in the Emperor's presence. Hence, he had been deeply affected by the Reformer's firmness. He felt proud of having taken such a man under his protection. When the chaplain arrived, the table was spread. The elector was just sitting down to supper with his court, and already the servant-in-waiting had taken away the vase in which, it was, in which it was the custom to wash before eating. On seeing Spalatin enter, Frederick instantly made a sign to follow him, and as soon as he found himself alone with him in his bedchamber, he said with strong emotion, Oh, how Luther spoke! before the emperor and all the states of the empire. All I feared was that he might go too far. From that time, Frederick formed a resolution to protect the doctor more openly. Aleander saw that the effect that Luther had produced there was no time to lose. It was necessary to urge the young emperor to adopt vigorous measures. The moment was favorable. A war with France was impending. Leo X, eager to aggrandize his states, and caring little for the peace of Christendom, was at the same time secretly negotiating two treaties, one with Charles against Francis. Francis I, the King of France, and the other with Francis against Charles. This is the scoundrel Charles is protecting against Luther and Hutton, and we shall quickly find out why. By the former, he stipulated with the Emperor for the possession of Parma, Placentia, and Ferrara. By the later, he claimed from the king a district of the kingdom of Naples, which should be conquered from Charles. The later, the importance of gaining Leo to his side, that he might be strengthened by his alliance in the war with his rival of France. The mighty pontiff's friendship seemed to, cheap, to be cheaply purchased by the sacrifice of Luther. All of the flowery language of the declarations concerning the traditions of his fathers was vanity. Charles V was just a cheap political whore who would sell his people for his own gain. And Leo X, the de' Medici Pope, was no better. To continue with this account, the day following Luther's appearance being Friday, the 19th of April, the emperor caused to be read aloud to the Diet a message written in Flemish by his own hand. 
descended from the Christian emperors of Germany, from the Catholic kings of Spain, from the archdukes of Austria and dukes of Burgundy, who have all distinguished themselves as defenders of the faith of Rome, I am firmly resolved to tread in the footsteps of my ancestors. A single monk, led astray by his own madness, erects himself against the faith of Christendom. I will sacrifice my kingdoms, my power, my friends, my treasure, my body and blood, my thoughts and my life, to stay the further progress of this impiety. I am about to dismiss the Augustine Luther, forbidding him to cause the least disturbance among the people. I will then take measures against him and his adherents as open heretics by excommunication, interdict, and every means necessary to their destruction. I call on the members of the states to comport themselves like faithful Christians. So Rubianus bails, Zosius bails, Mutian bails, Erasmus bails. None of them can stand up to the emperor. None of them are really men of substance. And the emperor himself is really just selling the Reformation to the Pope to get the Pope on his side against the King of France. It all boils down to money and politics. And that's it. The same old story ever since Genesis chapter 4, I would think. This address was not well received by all to whom it was addressed. Charles, young and hasty, had not observed the customary form which obliged him first to ask the opinion of the deed. Immediately, two directly opposite parties began to show themselves. The creatures of the Pope, the elector of Brandenburg, which is Joachim, the bishop of the brother of Bishop Albert, and several dignitaries of the church demanded that Luther's safe conduct should not be respected. His ashes ought to be thrown into the Rhine, they said, as was the fate of John Huss. Charles, if we may believe one historian, subsequently repented bitterly that he did not adopt this cowardly suggestion. I acknowledge, he said, towards the close of his life, probably about <clears throat> 30 years later, that I committed a great mistake in not punishing Luther with death. I was not bound to keep my promise. That heretic had offended a master greater than I. I might and ought to have forgotten my pledge and avenged the offense he committed against God. It is because I did not have him put to death that heresy has ever since been spreading. His death would have stifled it in his cradle. So the emperor says that Luther committed an offense against God while the emperor is buying and selling kingdoms and principalities to get political advantage with the Pope against the King of France and gives Luther up in the bargain. This frightful proposal filled the elector and all Luther's friends with alarm. The death of John Hus, said the elector Palatine, has brought too many calamities on Germany for us to think of again erecting a like scaffold.
Even Duke George exclaimed, The German princes will not endure the violation of a safe conduct. This first diet, presided over by our new emperor, will not be guilty of so shameful an action. Such perfidy befits not the ancient good faith of the Germans. Now, Duke George was no ally of Luther's. He was Duke George of Saxony. He was a diehard Catholic to the end and a staunch opponent of Luther, quite the opposite of his cousin Frederick the Elector. The The Bavarian princes, though attached to the Roman Church, supported this protest, the protest against a violation of safe conduct made by George of Saxony, and the prospect of his death that Luther's friends had before them gradually disappeared. The report of these discussions, which lasted for two days, circulated in the city. Party spirit was roused. Certain gentlemen who had espoused the new opinions began to speak their minds boldly on the act of treachery that Aleander solicited. It was Aleander, the papal nuncio, more than anyone who wanted to see the safe conduct violated and Luther put to death. The emperor, they said, is young and is led away by the cajoleries of papists and bishops. Palavinci, now Palavinci is one of our historian sources for this account, and Palavinci was evidently a historian, a Jesuit, and a cardinal, and not entirely trusted by some of the other writers on the Reformation that we had perused. Palavinci mentions 400 nobles already with their swords to enforce respect to Luther's safe conduct and they are the Knights of Franz von Sickingen's alliance which we had seen mentioned by Johann Janssen. On the morning of Saturday, placards were seen posted on the doors of the houses and in the public squares, some against Luther and others in his favor. In one was read the strong and simple words of Ecclesiastes, Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child, which we read earlier this evening from the Janssen account. It was rumored that Sickingen had assembled at a distance of a few leagues from Varms, within the impregnable, impregnable walls of his fortress, a number of knights and soldiers, and waited only, awaited only the issue of the affair to know the act. The popular enthusiasm, not merely in Varms, but even in the remotest towns of the empire, the intrepid courage of the knights, the devotion of several princes to the cause of the Reformation, all together gave clear intimation to Charles and to the Diet that the course of proceeding urged by the Romanists 
have killed Luther. Might place in jeopardy the supreme authority, give birth to popular commotions, and endanger the very stability of the empire itself. It was but a question whether a single monk should be brought to the stake, but the princes and partisans of Rome could not muster among them, among them all, either the strength or the courage necessary for the act. Doubtless also, Charles V, yet in his youth, feared to incur the guilt of perjury, to put an innocent man to death. We might infer this from a saying which, if report be true, he uttered at this juncture, though honor and good faith should be banished from the earth, they should find an asylum in the breasts of princes. It is a melancholy reflection that he appears to have forgotten this maxim before his death. But the emperor may have been actuated by other motives. The Florentine, Vittori, the friend of Leo X and of Machiavelli, affirms that Charles spared Luther that he might hold the Pope in check. So that's the other side of the coin, if that's true. In the sitting of Saturday, the violent propositions of Aleander were rejected. Luther was the object of much affection, and a desire was general to rescue this simple man, whose confidence in God was so affecting, but it was wished at the same time to save the church. Men trembled at the foreseen consequences of either the triumph or the punishment of the reformer. Plans of conciliation were started, and it was proposed to make a new effort with the Doctor of Wittenberg, the Archbishop Elector of Mainz himself, the young and prodigal Albert. More devout than bold, says Palavinci, and from what we've seen of the accounts of his court, he wasn't very devout, so he couldn't have been very bold had caught the alarm at witnessing the interest evinced by the people and the nobility in the fate of the monk of Saxony, his chaplain, Capito, who during his residence at Bale had contracted acquaintance with the evangelical priest of Zurich, Zwingle, a courageous confessor of the truth, of whom we have before had occasion to speak, there can be little doubt, also represented to Albert the justice of the reformer's cause. The worldly archbishop experienced one of those transient recurrences of Christian feelings which we sometimes trace in the lives of men, and consented to wait on the emperor and requested to give him time for a fresh attempt. But Charles would not hear of anything of the kind. On Monday, the 22nd of April, the princes came in the body to repeat the request of Albert. I will not go from what I have laid down, replied the emperor. I will authorize no one to have any official communication with Luther. But, he added, much to the indignation of Aleander, I will allow that man three days' consideration, during which time anyone may exhort him privately as he may think. It was all his friends asked. The reformer, they thought, elevated by the solemnity of his public trial, 
would perhaps give way in more friendly conference, and by this means it might be possible to save him from the gulf that yawned before him. Of course, Luther's friends probably didn't know what the Elector of Saxony was up to. The Elector of Saxony knew the very contrary. Hence, he was full of anxiety. If it were in my power, he wrote on the next day to his brother, Duke John. Now his brother wasn't the Duke. He did succeed the Elector of Saxony, and his brother's son, Frederick's nephew, did eventually become the Duke of Saxony. But the Duke of Saxony is Frederick's first cousin, George. Frederick held the title of Elector. The two titles were split upon the death of their common grandfather, Frederick II of Saxony. Our Frederick the Elector is Frederick III. Frederick says to his brother John, I would be ready to undertake the defense of Luther. You can hardly imagine how I am beset by the partisans of Rome. If I were to tell you all, you would hear strange things. They are bent upon his ruin, and if anyone evinces the least interest in his safety, he is instantly cried down as a heretic. May God, who forsakes not the cause of the righteous, bring the struggle to a happy issue. Frederick, without betraying his warm affection for the reformer, contented himself with keeping a constant eye upon all of his movements. It must be said, as we have read in several accounts, that Frederick the Elector was not truly a follower of Luther, and was not fully convinced of his theology, in spite of having Spalatin in his employment, but only wanted to make certain that Luther was treated fairly on that advice which he had gotten from Erasmus. It is only during the deed of arms, as we have seen here, that Frederick became an active but wisely cautious supporter of Luther. He was indeed referred to as Frederick the Wise. Continuing with our source from page 206. Not so men of all ranks at arms. Their sympathy broke forth without fear or disguise. They weren't as reserved as Frederick. On the Friday, a train of princes, counts, barons, knights, gentlemen, ecclesiastics, laity, and common people surrounded the reformer's lodging, entering and departing as if never satisfied with gazing on him. He was become the man of Germany. Even those who did not question his being in error were affected by the nobility of soul which led him to peril his life at the call of his conscience. Luther had the happiness of holding with many persons at farms and those some of the most intelligent of the nation, conversations abounding in that salt with which all his words were seasoned, all on leaving him, 
carried away a sentiment of generous enthusiasm for truth. How many things have I tell you, have I to tell you, wrote George Vogler, private secretary to the Margrave, Casimir von Brandenburg. What conversations, overflowing with piety and kindness, Luther has had with me and others. Oh, how rich in grace is this man. One day a young prince of seventeen years of age galloped into the court of the inn. It was Philip for who for two years had governed Hess from the time he was fifteen. The young landgrave was of decided and enterprising character, wise above his years, warlike, impetuous, and little accustomed to be guided by anything but his own will. Struck by Luther's speech, he wished to have a nearer view of him. He, however, was not on my side in the matter, said Luther, in relating it. He threw himself from his horse, ran up the stairs without ceremony to Luther's apartment, and addressing him said, Well, doctor, how are you going on? My noble lord, answered Luther, I think all will end well. I hear, replied the landgrave, laughing that you, doctor, teach that a woman may leave her husband and take another when the first is proved to be too old. The courtiers of the imperial court had invented this story. The enemies of truth never fail to circulate inventions as pretended doctrines of Christian teachers. And, of course, that tactic goes all the way back to the second century and is found in the writings of Tertullian. No, my lord, replied Luther, with gravity, do not talk thus, I beg of your highness. On this the prince thrust out his hand to the doctor, cordially grasping Luther's with the words, Dear doctor, if you are in the right, may God be your helper. And then, leaving the room, jumped into his saddle and rode off. It was the first interview of these two men, who were destined subsequently to stand in the van of the Reformation, defending it, the one by the sword of the word, and the other by that of the kingly power. And Philip of Hesse was a key player in the Schmalkaldic Wars, and the rest of the Reformation, all the way down to the passed beyond the death of Luther. This writer, unlike Johann Janssen, is much more sympathetic to the cause of Luther. However, the point in presenting this is to see that, in the aftermath of Arms, Luther had lost a lot of moral supporters, men who had begun as rebels, but now, holding offices and positions, would suddenly rather maintain the status quo. They seemed to fear the edicts of Charles and the bulls of the Pope. However, on the other hand, Luther gained a lot of supporters who were men 
of actual substance and action and not so much afraid of the emperor or the pope that they could not act contrary to the status quo. Unlike the young rebel poets, men such as Frederick the Elector and Philip of Hesse would be instrumental to the ultimate success of Luther's cause. But without those rebellious humanists and their early support, Luther would have never been known by his new friends and supporters. We will continue our presentation of Martin Luther in Life and Death, Yahweh willing, at some point in the near future. Next weekend, we shall be entertaining Pastor Mark Downey and his wife as they vacation here in Panama City. So we will not be making our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, but we'll present something different on Friday and Saturday. We just don't yet know what it will be. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night. Yeah.